That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today on the show, we have Arjuna Arda. And Arjuna is a personal mentor and friend. He was really instrumental as I was starting the Junto and getting deeper into men's work. Uh, he authored a book called Conscious Men with John Gray, the author of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And before that, he's written five other books. One of them, The Translucent Revolution, was a number one national bestseller. And uh, most importantly, he spent the last 25 years as an awakening coach, so helping uh, almost 2,000 coaches to become trained facilitators of awakening, which is just helping people to tap into deeper states of purpose, meaning, aliveness, and uh, really relates to what we talk about today. His big idea is all about the power of contribution really the ability to transcend the poverty of focusing so much on our own needs, desires, and wants, and understanding who we are and how we are here to contribute, to give back, to attach ourselves to something greater uh, than the self. And so for any of you who are interested in tapping into a deeper state of purpose, aliveness, uh, this is a great conversation. He's a great guy. So enjoy, and here he is. So without further ado... Arjuna, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be with you. Welcome to Brooklyn. Thank you, and thank you for bringing me into your home, which is really yummy and cozy and feels like home. I'm very happy to have you. This is a conversation that usually happens through Skype, so it's nice to be sitting on a chair. Non-virtual. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So Arjuna, you are a man of many ideas and mm. help people get to their breakout ideas I oftentimes do. as an mm-hmm. awakening coach. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'd love to hear from you mm. is right now, what is the big idea in the terms of what is one piece of insight, of mm. knowledge that you wish every person on the planet could integrate into their lives? Sure. What would that it's be? Very simple. Okay. I would say there is a dominant collective trance on this planet that you get you get you win or you you get you get to win at life you get to to have the best life through some form of acquisition whether it's getting the right partner or getting laid in the right way or getting money very often or getting the right house the right right stuff there's this collective trance globally that you thrive through acquisition But actually, research, careful research into very, very fulfilled people proves that that is not true. That actually the key to fulfillment, the key to actually having what you deep down long for is not acquisition, but contribution. And that's the big idea. Beautiful. And feels true to me, but I'd love to understand what you mean by contribution. Sure. So it's actually, and it's quite a lot to unpack, you know, contribution. Contribution means that essentially... Well, maybe it's better to explain it by example. I think an example would be better than a concept. Okay, You tell me. Yeah. So let's think of my friend Lynn Twist. So in, in my podcast, the Radical Brilliance podcast, she's number one. She's like episode one, Lynn Twist, because that's the place you start. You know? So Lynn Twist, she has really lived her whole life dedicated to something bigger than her own needs. But then even when she had children, 
quickly her family became dedicated to something bigger than just the family's needs. So she was always dedicated to something bigger than. When she was um, like a, a girl at school, her father, who was a big band leader, you know, the old big bands with, you know, like a big orchestra playing. You know, yeah, with leading the band with the baton. Yeah, exactly. That kind of, not, not a rock band, but an yeah. you know, old big band. Marching so her father was a big band leader and he died unexpectedly when she was, I think, just early in her teens, like 12 or something. It was very devastating to her, but she became very religious. So she would actually go to mass in the morning before going to school. Very unusual. She wanted to become a nun. She aspired to go live with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. That didn't happen, but it did happen in another way. But she always had that feeling. Then she actually went to um, Stanford. She became very politically active. So all her life, she just felt drawn to bigger causes. She, and this, this amplified, she ended up um, hooking up with Buckminster Fuller. She introduced Buckminster Fuller to Werner Erhardt, the founder of Est, and together they founded the Hunger Project. And she became the executive director of the Hunger Project, which means as she was raising a young family, her awareness was on how to alleviate poverty and, and starvation in countries all over the world. She was running teams. She, she, at one point, she had more than a million volunteers around the world working on the Hunger Project. Wow. Incredible. And she was trying to raise a family. So she used to tell the story that they were quite well to do. While, the, while her children's friends were going to Aspen skiing for the holidays, her family was going to Ethiopia to volunteer giving out food in food lines. Right. And her, her children have all grown up to become incredible people as a result of that. So the fast forward about 20 years ago, she was absolutely full on. She'd taken on global hunger as her project, like the, you know, the ending poverty, you know, the hunger project. So you couldn't have a bigger, a fuller plate than that. And she got this, she started to get these visions and this calling from a, from a, a tribe deep, deep, deep within the Amazon rainforest, like buried deep within the Amazon rainforest who had had no contact with the outside world. They were naked, basically. They'd had a little bit of contact by this point. They were sending her visions. She really resisted it completely. She said, there's no way I'm going to take on a new thing. But she did end up a year later going into the Amazon. Now she's, she's 20 years into the Pachamama Alliance. She's made her life mission now to save the Amazon rainforest. And now this is an example of somebody who's always... She, she, she said to me in that interview that I did with her, she said, I can't even remember what my needs are. I have this peripheral sense that I have personal needs and wants, but I really don't pay any attention to them, right? Because my life is consumed by this sense of giving. Now, that's a very extreme example. I'm not suggesting that everybody listening to this podcast is going to emulate that. The point being, though, that that kind of life and I could give lots more examples. I mean, Daniel Schmachtenberg is another example of living that way. I mean, you and Mickey are, you know, thinking much bigger than just your own needs and acquisition. We could, we could give, I could give you examples all day of people who live for something much bigger than their own needs. Their own needs are somehow included. But the, here's the thing about Lynn Twist. She said, it appears on the surface like I had to sacrifice my personal life. I had to give something up. But she said, it's quite the contrary, right? What I sacrificed was a kind of poverty, right? So obsession with what I need, what I want, keeps you in this feeling of lack. Essentially, desire creates poverty, you see? Because desire, it more and more reinforces the sense there's something missing that should be there. 
contribution creates overflow because the very context in which it's arising is different. See, when you, if you walk into a, a social gathering and you think, I want to get something from that person, I want to get something from that person, you are creating a, a, a context of that meeting of, of poverty. I'm missing something that these people can give me. If you walk into a social gathering with a feeling, I want to help that person, I want to, I want to support that person, I want to, where are the people in the room I can give to? You're, you're actually entering that space as an emperor or an empress. You see, you're, ent you're entering the space as somebody with a lot to give. So actually, contribution means that your basic assumption about life is that I have something to offer. Hmm. And it's not maybe I, me, because that's contract. It's more like there is a need here. There is a vacuum into which more love and more beauty can be upheld, right? Uh, can be so let's give a good example because I've come to stay at your house right so you're among the happiest people I know that's why I'm so happy to stay with you because it's a lovely buoyant fun environment you know there's you and Mickey and this and there's Hero who's always so happy and then I today I met Mary Sol you know who's, who's, who's looking after it's every it's a happy house right and so that's that's the kind of delight of a life of contribution is I'm not, gonna, I'm not coming here to kind of give you counselling because you're in terrible straits. But I, I, when, when you're in the habit of contribution, you just look for ways to lighten things even more. So those heroes, so let's play a game with hero. Let's go dum da dum da dum dum bum You know, let's, let's find a way to make someone happy even happier, right? Mm -hmm. So here's my buddy, Andrew, who's, you know, you, you kindly described me as a mentor. You're my mentor, man. You're my mentor in lots of ways, you know. But so let's look at Andrew, who's doing great. Is there some way that I can give Andrew a little nudge to make it even more amazing? You see, so that's a life of contribution is you assume not that you're God's gift to everybody, because that would become a kind of arrogance and a, a sort of a narcissism. But you assume that everything's humming along nicely, but there's always an opportunity to brighten someone's day a little more. That's on a kind of local level. But then you look for the biggest opportunities that are appropriate to you where you can make a difference. So if, like Lynn Twist, you could make a difference to the Amazon rainforest, you do that, right? So that's a life of contribution. There's a lot more to unpack in it, but it's basically, it's, a, it's just a flipped relationship to reality where you, you come from the assumption that your cup is overflowing yeah. rather than coming from the assumption that your cup is half full and needs filling. Yeah, and I, and I always like to try and replay this mm. idea back to make sure that I'm on the same Great, page. Great, do it, so yeah. You talked about it that the essence of, did you say happiness? Fulfillment. Fulfillment. Meaning, depth. That, that yeah. fulfillment, mm. we're under the guise that it comes from achievement, whether that be wealth, money, power, fame, mm -hmm. sex, mm -hmm. success, mm. but that it is, in fact, not acquisition, it's contribution. Mm -hmm. The act of connecting to something someone and giving yeah and not necessarily saying that it is my inherent ability or being or skill but that there's just always an inherent opportunity yeah to contribute yeah mm -hmm. and being open mm -hmm. to putting whatever that need is yeah into that vacuum into that place Exactly. So you look, you constantly seek out. Yeah. You, wherever you go, you seek out opportunities to make things a little more sparkly. It's a beautiful assumption to make about the world and, mm -hmm. and every room that you walk into. And so you, you gave the example of Lynn. And I'm curious, 
when did this idea become clear to you? If you were to go back into a moment when the the proverbial switch flipped, mm. what happened? Where were you? That's a great question. I think as I do a quick spa- scan, I'm pretty sure there was no quick flip. I think it was just it was just try it a little bit. You know, I probably had an inkling of it. I think I got even got messages about this in my childhood from my grandparents. I think my grandfather at one point said, you're either a giver or a taker. It didn't really land in me then, but there've been little clues of this all along. I remember when I went to boarding school, I was about 15, and it was a terrible place. It was like a prison. It was just awful. <laughs> it literally, I went to a boarding school, literally had like barbed wire to keep you in, sure. you know. And I remember the, the headmaster who was in many ways a you know a sadistic old bastard, but he he uh, he at one point gave his pretty decent talk one day, which he must have read somewhere, where he said he, he gave this picture of hell, and hell was there are all these people sitting in a long line, and six feet away from them is a is is a table with delicious food, and they're starving, and they've got these chopsticks, but the chopsticks are six feet long, so they can gather up the food, but they can't get it to their mouths. So that's hell. All this beautiful food, you can't get the food in your mouth. Heaven, he said, is exactly the same scenario, but now they're feeding each other. Right. By now, that story's become quite popular. When he told it back then, it was I'd never heard that before. Yeah. So it was the notion that you know, heaven and hell are only separated by whether you're living only for yourself or living for other people. Beautiful. And so what about the people who maybe haven't occupied this mindset or it's unfamiliar to them. Mm. Um, for the person who may perceive a lack of ability, of skill, of resources to give in mm. the way that they've been conditioned to, to yeah. see giving, yeah. um, how does that person integrate this wisdom into their life? How do they start to actually apply this and take action? Got it. Well, the other, that's, that's a really great question. And the other thing I'd like to just tie to that is to recognize that what, what we're discussing here, like contribution versus acquisition, it, you can apply it to many different areas of life. You can apply it to, to sex, the, literally the, the physical mechanics of how you have sex, right? Yeah. You can apply it to relationship generally. You can apply it to parenting. You can apply it in, in, all diff- in almost any area of your life. There's one scenario that it looks like from acquisition a different different scenario from contribution okay so but in answer, in answer to what you, you you were saying one element of this has to do with your physical energy level okay so if your energy is depleted when your energy is very depleted it, it feels like you're depressed you can't get out of bed you're just like ah, oh, you're just lethargic that's low energy right so one thing I think is really important if you want to shift from acquisition to contribution is to have really reliable physical practices that increase your level of energy. Mm. Now, a really good one, one thing I've learned for me, I don't know if it's true for everybody, is getting up incredibly early in the morning, there's a lot more energy then. Like mm. actually before the dawn, like an hour before the dawn, if you can be awake then and be ready, wide awake to greet the sun, there's like tons of energy available then. If you're staying up late, late at night, if you're staying like after midnight, that's a very depleted, that your body has no natural reserves at that time of the night, right? So it's just one little tip, you know, if you, if you want to shift towards having more to give, get up early in the morning and then integrate some practices that, that restore your energy level. So for me, a simple one is actually just sitting still. Now that's particularly suitable for a man because it has to do with the way that testosterone mm. 
is stored in the muscles and the way that dopamine is restored. Mm. So basically when a man just sits still, he just sits still with his spine straight and does absolutely nothing except just observes what's going on, mm. he will restore his energy. That's actually a slightly more masculine practice. For women, actually moving to music would do, much, would do the same thing because it's to do with, uh, with uh, oxytocin wow. or just hanging out with other women. If a woman hangs out with other women, she's going to restore herself. It's proven. There's, there's, there was research done at UCLA in 1999. When women go out to lunch together and just hang out and <laughs> dr drink a little wine and have some cheese and, and talk, not about work, uh, their oxytocin levels double in an hour. Wow. So women restore themselves more. The, 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 the woman's hormonal system restores itself more through supportive contact, men through withdrawing from the world. That's, of course, a gross generalization. You know? Sure. So that's one thing, you know, that finding a way to restore your energy. The other thing that's really useful is there's a whole science of rebuilding your energy, which comes from China. And the word energy in China is qi. Yeah. And the word for a practice, a discipline to achieve a particular outcome is kung. So qi kung means a discipline to move energy. So there are very, very simple practices that are very easy to learn where you, you, you know, there's a, a movement you do like this. I'm just going to, I'm bringing my hands up over my head and I'm kind of pulling energy down from the heavens, you know, down through my body, down to this place called the lower dantian, which is halfway between the navel and the pubic bone. Yeah. So you store energy there. So these are simple practices which are designed to pull in and store energy in the batteries of the body. And I could give you, we, I don't think we have time now, but I could give you probably 20 different things we can do to build up energy in the body. Also, I mean, the kind of diet you have, all sorts of things. Like, of course, eating a lot of sugar burns up energy. Yeah. Drinking bone broth would restore energy, you see, yeah. for example. So, or whatever the uh, vegetarian equivalent would be. But yeah. uh, So... That's the one thing is, in order to live a life of contribution, you've got to attend to the fact that you're not depleted. If you're feeling depleted and the, and the extreme of depleted is depressed or burned out, you're not, you don't have much to give. So you build up your energy, you know, that's one thing. And then, you, I mean, people sometimes get a little bit wrapped up or obsessed with what's my life purpose, what's my mission. You know, people even do like online courses to discover your life purpose. I don't think that's a very useful activity. You know, it's, it's, it becomes very conceptual and it actually ends up becoming, ironically, a narcissistic activity. Like, I need to find my life purpose. I'm going to do this work. For, you know, I would say it's much more useful to just to develop a very unpretentious disposition of contribution in little ways. Yeah. Right. So I don't know, give up, a, give up your seat on the bus to somebody who could use it more than you. Or, yeah. You know, or... If somebody drops their fork, pick it up and go get them another one or something. Just these little things, just constantly. If you develop the sensitivity, life is giving you opportunities to make a difference to people all day long yeah. in little tiny ways. And the more you do that, the more you get in the habit of being a contributor, the more you're going to be called, the more likely it is you'll be called upon, like Lynn Twist was, to go save the Amazon rainforest. Yeah, it's it, it. This this insight is taking me back to the time right after I graduated from college, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, and mm. I declined a hospitality job that I didn't care about. Uh, my father and I decided to drive across the country, and mm. I remember having this piece of insight where, when I was in this place in my life where I had no idea 
hmm. what I wanted to do, where I wanted to exert my energy, uh, how I could contribute, um, that my father helped me to realize the significance of this internship I had hmm. where I was helping young people with disabilities to play sports. Hmm. And I just identified a, a sense of pride that was still alive in me from my my time working with these young people and raising tens of thousands of dollars. And when I talked about pride, my dad just said, well, why don't you just do more of that? And I remember that the, the piece of insight that I got there was that if I wanted to feel good, just make someone else feel good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. you know, that that rang true is that in a moment in my life when I had such uncertainty and nothing to really guide my actions, that that mm-hmm. was the foundational piece that ultimately mm. led me down this path and mm. led me to start volunteering more, that led me to start my yeah. first nonprofit. Mm. Um, and one thing that I, I'd want to add on here as well is the idea of when it comes to contribution, mm. you know, something that I think is is so valuable here is the idea of demystifying it, that you need to know mm. how to contribute. Mm. Because I think one of the most beautiful things we can do, and this is fairly new discovery in my life, but to contribute, mm. one of the most effective ways that I've learned to do that is to ask people yeah. how they'd like to be helped. Right. Is to ask people, how can I support you? Because that in and of itself, mm. of a, a, a friend of mine right now, going through a tough emotional time, and when I'm with when I'm with him in conversation, there could be so much uncertainty and anxiety about what to say and what he needs, as opposed to me just asking him, "How can I support you?" Nice. For anyone who's going through a challenging time, is that that simple question, whether it's to an individual, a friend, a family member, whether it's at your organization or your company, of understanding, how can I support you right now? Yeah. That that question demystifies it, and in so many ways. Mm just sets the whole playing field of your relationships, mm. your work relationships in such a way where people understand your availability for that. Yeah. And so I think that really when you when you embrace that disposition that everything can can really change and and one thing I'd love to ask you is what do you think is the the resistance to this idea? What keeps people from embracing this mentality? I definitely love to answer that. And yeah. could I just add one little edit? Please, or yeah. Just a contribution. I love what you said about, you know, how can I support you? It's one thing I also want to be sensitive to, you know, because I, you know, I've, I think I've really, we often teach what we most need to learn, you know? Uh, and I think I, I was an only child you know, and, and not just an only child, but like a pampered, a, like a, a spoiled brat only child. And feedback I used to get when I was young was, you know, oh, you, you, you assume the world revolves around you. I was that kind of person who put my own needs first, kind of verging towards the narcissistic personality. So this has been my work. This is not my natural inclination. It's been my work to shift in this direction and to, to become more sensitive. So I've had to really learn it, you know, and, and make a lot of mistakes. So one thing I've noticed is sometimes when someone is depleted in some way, whether it's financially or emotionally or physically, whatever, sometimes if you ask them, how, how, how can I support you? How do you want to be supported? If they're depleted, having to figure that out may become an extra burden on them. Sure. So what I found also is great is to make a gesture of support and then ask, how does that feel? Right. Mm. So um, I, do, I see that with my wife. Yeah, so marriage, 
is just a, the most fabulous playground to experiment with contribution over acquisition. So I, I sometimes I work with couples, and oftentimes both partners come to the conversation talking about my needs. You know, I want, I want to tell you about my needs. But when two people meet concerned with getting their needs met, mm. it doesn't usually lead to the best outcome. You know, if, if on the other hand you can flip it around to, I'm curious about my partner's needs and how I can contribute to to supporting them, yeah. then you've got two people wanting to, to support each other. Yeah. So that's really what Shamley and I are all about, you know, in, in our experiment. Um, if, if, if I notice I need something, yeah. I'm going to go to my room alone until I've, <laughs> until I've found a way to fill that up. And I'll go to her when I've got something to give. You know? yeah. But sometimes she's, you know, a little run down or something and I, I feel I want to give. Or she's sick or something like that. So if I, I've noticed if I go to her and she's sick or not feeling well, or she has a period or something, and I say, you know, how can I support you? That actually can feel like a demand to her because it's like, I'm already not feeling well and I've got to figure out how you can support me, you see? So what I'll do is I'll make a gesture. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll just walk in and just start to massage her feet. And then I'll say, how does that feel? And I'll, so I'll ask, for, you know, is, does that feel good? You sure. Know? Or I'll... Maybe saying, maybe instead of saying, "Can I get you something to eat or drink?" Yeah, I might say, "Would you like a carrot ginger soup?" Right. So it's it, it, it's presenting her with something. Yeah. So I found, but so I think there's a kind of middle ground. You know that if you if you if you make it a completely open ended thing, especially for a really good example if someone's depressed. If someone's depressed, you say, "How can I support you?" That's not usually the best thing to ask a depressed person because they don't know they're depressed. You know, they're kind of they're out of options. Um, on the other hand, if you just do what you think is right and don't, not curious about feedback, you can become, you know, you can be completely That's missing the mark. Mm. Yeah. But you find this middle ground of off, make a gesture and very, very early on say, how does that, how does that feel for you? Yeah. Anyway. So yeah. you wanted me to say something else. Was, was so, so yeah, so just to rehash that as well is that, you know, there are two avenues to go there is that um, when you don't have a relationship with somebody, you know, a uh, starting place is oftentimes to ask how we can support. Yeah. But when you do have a more intimate relationship where you can take that kind of initiative, right? Mm -hmm. And just take conscious action to support someone and then check in. Yeah. That's how they feel. So I think both of those approaches are super important to, to consider and to, to add into the fold. And so one thing that I, I usually like to ask guests, and I really am curious about it here, is... To talk about the resistance yeah. of what is it that keeps people from integrating this approach into their lives? What is it that keeps mm. people so focused on the acquisition? Right. You know, I, I go back to the Rolling Stone song that says, uh, everyone says money doesn't buy happiness, but I want to find out for myself. <laughs> and it's, what is it that, what is nice. it that keeps everyone in this cycle of yeah. achievement and acquisition? Yeah. So actually, believe it or not, um, I would say that the answer lies in the development of Western philosophy. Uh, so really, you could say the problem began essentially with Aristotle. Okay. So and I'll give you a quick, quick <laughs> sense of how it, 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 to do with our underlying assumptions. Right. So really, if we look at different philosophical streams around the world, there are, you could broadly divide them into two camps. I mean, this is very, very broad and, and, and gross, right? So one, we could loosely call empiricism, which is where Western science has arisen from. Yeah. And that's really the idea that there is a fixed 
physical reality that we are both sharing. And so we are actually components of that fixed physical reality, which means you and I are both players in a much bigger universe over which we have no control. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the best we can do is measure and observe this empirical reality, right? But essentially, I'm small. And according to that way of seeing things, um, consciousness is a byproduct of the brain. So really, there's this physical thing and consciousness being generated out of it. Now, all that really began in Western thought with Aristotle. Before that, nobody came up with that idea. And Aristotle gave birth to empiricism, right? But pretty much at the same time, within his lifetime, there was Socrates and Plato, who took a completely different view. And Socrates and Plato were much more in alignment with the views that have arisen in India as Advaita Vedanta and different, you know, in the whole Vedantic tradition, which is essentially that consciousness is primary. So the way that you see that is, first there's consciousness, which is universal. Consciousness kind of starts to vibrate in its universality. It, it vibrates initially as thought. And one of the, you could say the original thought that it has is the sense of I. It's the, the notion of a separated, localized point within consciousness. This is very abstract stuff, you know. As that vibrates more, it becomes an I and an I am, but with an ellipse at the end, right? I am ellipse. And the answer to that, I am ellipse, creates the whole world. Like, I am, I am uh, a graduate. I'm the son of Sam Horn. I'm the husband. That becomes one localized identity, which is just a whole bunch of I am ellipses filled out with different answers. And then a different bunch of I am ellipses over here creates another identity. I am very small, black with a lot of legs becomes an ant, you see. So it's, these are just different answers to the I am question. But it's all the same consciousness vibrating. Right. So that reason, although this sounds a little obscure, you know, uh, this is actually the core of the thing is the basic assumptions that you make about reality. Right. So if you trace it back, if you're willing to see that science is 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 inquiry, mostly outwardly directed towards physical things that can be measured. Science mostly measures things you can see and hear and feel and tries to put limits on them. Science hasn't put a whole lot of attention to the other way. Right? It's put a lot of attention to what can be seen. It hasn't paid so much attention to who or what is seeing, yeah. right? to the nature of consciousness. That has been paid a lot of attention to in mysticism, but not in science. If you turn the attention back to, the, to, to actually your subjective experience of what is seeing and hearing and feeling, you're going to go backwards, right? So now you're going to have things you can, physical objects. You're going to trace it back then to the correspondence of those physical objects in consciousness, which we call thoughts, memories. Those are objects that now live in consciousness. If you trace it back again, you get to like emotions, just more like pervasive states that that. So you could actually feel sadness without having any story around it, right? If you keep tracing it back, you'll actually trace it back to very core contractions within consciousness, which is really just the feeling of separation or the feeling of being localized rather than universal. If you, if you get back that far mm. and then become curious, well, who or what is aware of this contraction? Because that now there's the contraction of localizedness, yeah. which has fear. Because it's localized, it has fear of being, of being messed up by other localized things. And desire, because being localized, it's small and it wants more of what's outside itself to make itself bigger. So fear and desire are all both products of feeling localized right so now we have this just this core contraction of localization without much story around it but there is awareness of that 
You see, there is awareness at that point, but this takes some inquiry. There is awareness of just the feeling of localization. So now we can ask, well, who is aware? Who or what is noticing this contraction? And then we get to the point where we realize that that which is noticing the contraction of localization is not localized. It's universal. Hmm. It has no beginning and end. It's never born, never dies. It's neither male nor female. It's not incarnate. See, and actually inquiry leads us to, and this, this is not philosophical, it's experiential. It leads us to the direct realization of being that, the direct realization that there are no boundaries to this which I am. This which is seeing you has no boundaries. There's a body that has boundaries, but this which is looking out through the eyes and seeing my friend Andrew has no boundaries. There's a body that has a penis, but this which is aware has no gender, you see. The body was born, the body goes through changes over time, the body will die, but this which is aware was never born and could never die. So that is actually a different assumption about reality because it now means what I am is infinite, eternal consciousness, not separate from anything else. So everything I see is part of me. It's only an appearance that this is something, that this Andrew is something separate from me. Mm. It's the same me in a different packaging, you see. And that's the natural basis of compassion and generosity and oneness, you know, and, and empathy, because it's actually, it's just me in another form. You see, it's, it's, it's this same consciousness in another form. So that's actually a, diff a completely different philosophical orientation to reality that you're, see you're experiencing, not, you're not thinking about it, but you're experiencing consciousness as primary, everything vibrating out of consciousness. And that disposition, first, it means you have, you, in what you really are, you have no fear or desire. There's no fear because nothing can, there's nothing can be done to hurt the infinite. You can't, no. you, could, you could smash an object, you can't smash the sky. And do you, do you feel that this experience mm -hmm. of connecting with the seer, if you will... Of being the seer. Yeah. Of being the seer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, is available to everyone? Yeah. Or do you feel that... Because my initial reaction is that... I, know, I, I get your point. Yeah, I can answer you very quickly. Yeah. The, I, uh, I don't feel it. I don't think it. I know it. I mean, I know it. I know it in the same way... I know it because this has been my life's focus, you know. I know it in the way that if you took this book and drop it on the floor, right, you just drop the book on the floor. And I go, wow, so something made that happen. So then I would say, do you, Andrew, do you feel that any object would that would happen if you let it go? Just right. about. Yeah, but do you see what I mean? If I said, well... If you took, you know, do you feel, if I would say to you, okay, that was amazing, but do you feel like every book would drop in the same way? Probably not. But, well, no, I mean, like, yeah, like if I drop it like that? Yes. yes. Okay. Right. So, but that's, that's in the category of, it's not like I feel or it's my opinion. It's like, you know that, yeah. right? You know it so deeply, you know that gravity <laughs> applies it. to everything, right? Yeah. So I've spent, for better or worse, you know, I've had the privilege to spend most of my life exploring this with a lot of people, with, with actually thousands of people. Yeah. And it's not like, do I can't say I feel that or I think that everybody can access this. I know that everybody can access this instantaneously. Not after some process, everybody can access this recognition of infinity immediately. And when they do that, mm -hmm. how does the way they relate to the world change? Right.
the answer to that you know is is gradually it, it shifts gradually the reason being when you're in a moment of recognizing consciousness as primary and that's all there is if you have a deep moment of that in that moment you will not experience separation you'll still be able to notice that the body has different features. That body has beard. This one doesn't. Like you can still intelligently notice. I guess it does a little bit. Uh, you can still intelligently notice differences. But essentially, look when you look into the eyes that are looking back at you, you recognize the same consciousness, right? But there are. This is a. This is an animal. You know. This is a. This is a kind of monkey, right? That that like all animals, and it has its its instincts, its biological instincts some of which are in, 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 intrinsic to it, like hunger and sex and sleep, some of which have been conditioned into it to be selfish, to be backbiting, to be, you know, so on. So I think what happens is you, they're, they're, over time there comes to be just a rebalancing yeah. of, of those. And, you, and, and it's a gra- matter of gradually testing. You, know, you test what it's like to, to show up as overflowing yeah. in moments and you realize, wow, that, was, that went really well. <laughs> Yeah. Everybody benefited from that experiment. Yeah. So in my own case, you know, the the, uh, the 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 conditioned, the default state of this particular mind body, is very selfish. It was it was born an only child, very narcissistic, and so it requires continuous vigilance and retraining to overcome that. But it can happen. You know, and it's not, I mean, it's never 100% done, but you, there, there can be the recognition that every time there is a feeling of desire or fear, by, by desire, I don't, but just there's natural playful desire. I mean, every time there's a craving to get something for me at the expense of other people, that kind of like, uh, you know, that kind of addictive desire. Yeah. Every time that's happen, that happens or every time there's fear of threat, it's time to recalibrate. It's not time to follow that in action. It's time to settle back in and recalibrate, you know, and just go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I was leaning out a little too far out of my natural state. Mm. Time to recalibrate. And so how essential is the recognition of this truth? Consciousness is primary. Um, the experience of being the seer to grasping the idea and the concept of contribution versus acquisition? Well, you know, I don't know for sure. I can say in my case, they are intricately connected. I've... Why? Um, because... How does, how does one support the other? Because, you see, um, wanting to help people, right, can come from many different dimensions. So one level of wanting to help people is that we want to look good and get approval and kind of reinforce our saintly holier than thou appearance there's a can i tell you a little story sure a really quick story who do we both know who says 30 second story sam horn <laughs> right. who we love yeah so anyway here's a quick story and this story takes place in england where in england you have there's the local church and there's the vicar who's usually a little older you know yeah. And then there's the curate. And the curate is a young man of about 30 who's very eager to please, you know. It's like, oh, may I help you, you know. So anyway, this, um, this curate walks into a hotel, like a country hotel in England. And, he, and there's a flight of stairs that goes, you know, big flight of stairs that goes up. 
and then there's a little bit of a landing and then another flight of stairs so you see when you go you go up halfway and then the stairs go up again so halfway up the stairs he sees there's an old lady there with some suitcases right and she's she's bent over and she's huffing and puffing so the vicar wanting to be a very jolly good very good vicar he runs up the stairs without even speaking grabs the suitcases rushes them to the top of the top landing and thinking he's done a great deed so the little old lady comes up behind she's got her umbrella in her hand still and she starts hitting the vicar violently with the umbrella he says oh 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 madam what are you doing and she says it took me half an hour to get those suitcases down that far you just undid all my work you yeah. see right so that's an example where the identification with look how good i am yeah. can actually be undoing someone's good work instead of supporting them so there are many dimensions in us if if the doing good comes from guilt or ego identification with i'm a good person or any of that it's different for me it there's a different quality where instead of being a good person you relax into the dimension where you're not a person at all where your consciousness and then recognizing that most of the in my case it's very easy because my personality is so dysfunctional <laughs> and so havoc chaos oriented mm. that it's pretty easy to let go of it <laughs> there's not there's not much worth salvaging there you see <laughs> right and so um so you just you, you relax you just relax and go okay it's kind of thy will be done you know it's like, okay just relax into that spacious dimension and then just let that meet the world you mm. see and let's face it you know you no i don't think anyone's going to be successful in that 100% but even if you were successful in that 3% it would be a remarkably improved life yeah well i i definitely agree and i'm you know i want to leave this on a note of the real practical application of this sure. knowledge and so for sure. someone who's listening to this yeah and they they're on board yeah. so they they appreciate this could i give five quick tips shift well i just i'd love to hear yeah for someone who's actually yeah. wants to apply this idea of contribution to their life yeah how would you encourage them to do that brilliant is it okay if i make a reference to something that's on my website that's oh, free yeah. sure okay yeah. so there's a little meditation that you could call it meditation a little guided sitting that you can get for free on radicalbrilliance.com yeah and it's a little audio it takes I think if you do the whole thing it takes you could do it in 10 minutes and it just guides you very simply into recognizing any places of contraction in the body and using your breath to relax them and then for a few minutes just being with this question of who am I really but not philosophically but really experientially the sounds are heard oh right now sounds are heard so really who or what is hearing sounds yeah my friend is seen here or the microphone is seen or the table is seen who or what is really seeing and at the beginning that might create a little bit of thinking but if you drop deeper it will actually create a genuine inquiry like going to look for the one who sees mm. and then there's you just start to notice a kind of settling the breath becomes a little deeper there's a kind of feeling of peace starts to take you over and you start relaxing into being that so that's one tip you know it's just that's very simple we don't want to make this into a big work you know like the decades to become enlightened or something this is just a simple thing that we can do right now sure to pay more attention to the nature of consciousness that's number 
if it were quick tips, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Number two is find ways to increase your body energy. You know, so let's say number two is try experiment with waking up earlier in the morning. See if you can wake up an hour before the dawn. Yeah. Sounds a bit extreme to some people, but that's really where all the good good energy is to be found. You know? And where what about to implement some simple qigong? Yeah, where, well that's number three. Yeah. Number three would be find some kind of physical practice that suits you. Yeah. That demonstrates to you that you're building up reserves of energy. So Qigong is a really obvious way to do that, but dance could do it too. Could be that having sex in a particular way could do that as well. There are certain ways of having sex where you build up energy. So for, very simply for a man is to, get, is to start to entertain the possibility that you could have really amazing sex without ejaculating. Yeah. So you actually start to circulate energy in your body. You know? Which so, a great place to start that is... The way or not uh, is the multi-orgasmic man. Multi-orgasmic man, absolutely. By Montauk Chia awesome is a great place to yeah. learn more about that. The microcosmic orbit. Totally, and, yeah. totally. And for a woman, also, there's a way of circulating sure. energy too. Yeah, and there's some jade egg practices. So that's number three. Number four, I would say, is just look for look for little opportunities throughout the day. Just just make your day an experiment in in contributing to people. If even if you just found five opportunities in a day to do something that leaves somebody else's day improved. Yeah. You know, uh, one thing that I love to do is anytime I notice any kind of beauty, I comment on it. Like, oh, lovely shoes. Or in fact, last night I went out for dinner with our mutual friend, Mark Thornton, and the waitress came. Now I'm old enough now that I can say this without, without appearing kind of sleazy, like I'm hitting, because it's like, yeah. you know, this young waitress comes, you know, I said to her, wow, you're incredibly beautiful. You know, how does it feel to be so beautiful? And she, I mean, that, how many times do really beautiful people really get told cleanly, wow, you're a beauty, you know, you're a, just a fabulously beautiful person. And she, she, she opened up, she told me about herself, her website, you know, yeah. she's a model, you know, everything. And she felt really seen, she felt seen. Wow, thank you for seeing my beauty, you know. So that'd be number three, number four. And number five is more to do with the kind of the bigger picture of finding the great work of your life. And I would say, I would advise people not to make some sort of job search out of that, you know, like what is, but to simply, I think it's a very simple thing at night, you can do a little prayer, right? And you don't have to make a big religious thing about what is God and everything, just a, a little prayer to something bigger than your own mind. And the simple prayer is, I'm available, use me. You know, as you go to sleep <laughs> at night, like, hey, I don't know who, it's important to say, I don't know who you are. Yeah. I don't know which religion you're affiliated with. I don't know if you're male or female. I don't know anything about you, but I know that you're running this show and I'm available on your team, use me, give me a job. And that prayer, I would say, is much more effective than doing some big find my life purpose, cerebral checking off boxes kind of process. Just the simple disposition, I'm available to do your will, not my will anymore, it's small contracted. Use me, I'm available. Use me, I'm available. I will do that tonight. <laughs> Arjuna, I love this uh, very much. And I love watching your mind at work, uh, going deeper into philosophy and the nature hmm. of the universe and consciousness. And hmm. uh, thank you for making it all so practical and leaving on, on these actual tips that people can do tonight, my man. And thank so if you, people want to follow up with you, brother, radicalbrilliance.com. Radical, radical yeah. And on the socials, what's your handle? Oh, it's just my name, Arjuna Arda. Yeah. Arjuna Arda. Yeah. All right, guys. So we're going to have everything locked into the show notes. But uh, let's leave on one final note, which is I'm available. Use me. And may we remember that the path to fulfillment is not one of acquisition. It's truly one of contribution. Sweet.
Thank you, brother. Thanks, man.